Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate Steele. And I'm Dr Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Total Eclipse of the Heart Part 2, where we discuss cardiopulmonary bypass for major cardiac surgery with special guest Dr Ivan Rapchuk. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Okay, so we're back again with Dr. Ivan Rapchuk to discuss cardiopulmonary bypass. Thanks for joining us for a second episode. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So if we put it into a more clinical context with a couple of hypothetical cases, uh, so we've got a 65-year-old woman booked for a triple vessel coronary artery bypass. She weighs 80 kilograms and is 160 centimetres tall with a BMI of 31. Other than her ischemic heart disease, she has hypertension only. It's the day of surgery. What does the perfusionist do before this lady is even wheeled into the operating theatre? Okay, well, a perfusionist generally does a series of calculations once they've set up their cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. And these calculations will help with the conduct of the bypass. They determine the cardiopulmonary blood flow rate. They determine the estimated hematocrit while on pump. And they determine the amount of blood required in the prime, if necessary, to target the ideal hematocrit. They will then prime the bypass circuit. Typically, we'll use a crystalloid solution that has an electrolyte composition and osmolarity similar, similar to plasma. Some centers may add a colloidal solution to provide plasma colloidal oncotic pressure, which is reduced as a consequence of bypass. However, for most cases, crystalloid will do just fine. They can then add other solutions to the prime. They can add mannitol. This can help with diuresis and free radical scavenging and preventing edema. They can add bicarb, sodium bicarbonate, because the prime is often slightly acidotic, so this will buffer it. They can add heparin, and this is critical because it anticoagulates the blood that's coming into contact with the bypass circuit. And if needed, they can add blood. So this will all generally happen before the patient is brought into theater. And then, once that's done, we get the patient in. Right now, so... Going back to our case, we've just wheeled the patient into theatre. We've inserted a large bore IV and an arterial line and induced her with the quintessential perfectly hemodynamically stable induction. Um, after induction, we place a central line and the surgeons are prepped and draped and are about to start operating. So what happens at this point to get the patient onto bypass safely? Well, partly it depends on the type of surgery we're, take, we're, we're undertaking. If we're doing bypass grafting, so coronary artery bypass surgery, the surgeon will need to harvest some conduit for the bypass. Mm. If we're doing valve work or aortic work, we can generally go on to pump really quickly. Mm. Prior to going on bypass, we need to anticoagulate the patient. Exposure of blood to the plastic cardiopulmonary bypass circuit, the blood-air interface in the venous reservoir, and then the trauma the blood receives as it traverses the bypass circuit and the pumps involved activates a number of different systems to produce a systemic inflammatory response. So heparinization decreases the effect of this SERS response. So we heparinize the patient with about 400 units per kilogram of unfractionated heparin. So I'm just going to interrupt you there. Yeah. 400 units per kilo. Yes. Sounds crazy to the non-cardiac anesthetist. It does. So in our 80 kilo patient, that's 32,000 yep. units of heparin? Okay. Absolutely. And some people believe more. So you'll often give an average patient about 40,000 units of heparin. That's amazing. So but when we do this, we heparinize them, and then we aim for an activated clotting time, or ACT, of greater than 480 seconds. Once the patient's heparinized and the ACT has started to climb, the first thing the surgeon is going to do is place the aortic cannula. 
From an anesthetic side, what do we do? Well, we drop the blood pressure to around 90 systolic to decrease the chance of aortic dissection during cannula insertion. To prepare, pre- prepare for aortic cannulation, the perfusionist has been circulating the CPV priming volume in a closed loop. The surgeon will cut the tubing of this closed loop, and we're going to insert the patient into the loop. Arterial cannulation will then occur by the surgeon putting a small aortic cannula into the ascending aorta. It is not placed as high as the arch, however it is placed high enough on the aorta to allow both the cross clamp and an anti-grade cardioplegia line to fit below the clamp. The aorta is then cannulated and the aortic line tubing from the cardiopulmonary bypass machine is attached. Can I ask another question about that? I have a vague memory of standing back when this was happening rather than peering over the drapes. Is that a correct memory that despite dropping the blood pressure to 90, when they place aortic cannula, there still can be a little bit of a splashback? There can for sure. Mm, And now we recommend that glasses be worn on all (laughs) observers. Isn't it interesting how our our knowledge about infection control has really improved during a pandemic? Oh, we should be wearing eye protection. It's amazing. In addition, I'll say that the other reason you do that is because the pump at that moment is pressurized to move forward Mm -hmm. to reduce air. And and when they connect it to the aortic cannula, there is a little bit of pressure there, which Mm -hmm. can sometimes squirt out a little bit of blood Mm -hmm. as the connection occurs. So two reasons for sure. (laughs) Excellent. Now, where were we? Venus cannula. Yeah, so the venous, so then the, absolutely, so then the venous cannula. So once the aortic cannula is put in place, then the venous cannula needs to be placed. For most closed heart procedures, so those are procedures where the heart is, chambers are not opened, cabbage or bypass would be the most common, and aortic valve surgery is another one. Um, we use a dual stage cannula, and this is placed directly into the right atrium through the right atrial appendage. Now it's called a two stage or dual stage cannula, because it has a great light, grate-like opening at the very end that drains the inferior vena cava, and another grate-like opening about 10 centimeters above this that drains the right atrium and superior vena cava. If there's an open-heart procedure, examples would be a mitral valve or tricuspid valve surgery, then the surgeon needs a bloodless field on the right side of the heart so they can't have any plastic tubing or blood in their way. So for these procedures, we do bicaval cannulation, mm-hmm. where one venous cannula is placed in the inferior vena cava, one is placed in the superior vena cava. They are then connected by a Y connector to the single venous tubing, which goes back to the bypass machine. Mm-hmm. So once the team's happy that the aortic cannula is in without trauma to the aorta, and the venous cannula is in and freely able to drain blood passively from the heart, we'll initiate cardiopulmonary bypass. The perfusionist will slowly increase the flow of the roller pump to push blood through the aortic line to the patient, while passive drainage of the blood occurs into the venous reservoir to allow the heart and lungs to be completely taken out of the circuit. So the next step is placement of the cardioplegia line, or lines. So cardioplegia can even either be given antegrade down the right and the left coronaries as per normal blood flow, or retrograde through the coronary sinus and backwards through the great veins of the heart. To facilitate this, an anti-grade cardioplegic cannula is placed in a spot that will be between the aortic clamp and the aortic valve. The coronary sinus catheter is placed to allow for retrograde cardioplegia. Now remember, the great veins of the heart do not have valves, Mm. unlike our leg veins and arm veins. Mm. So you can actually push blood backwards 
as you would through retrograde motion to allow for retrograde cardioplegia to occur. So just to quickly run through cardioplegia, mm. actually. So um, obviously this means, you know, pleging the heart. So it's, you know, basically um, stopping the heart or freezing the heart. And what exactly is in the solution and how much of it is given? Well, the key thing is high potassium. Mm. So that's going to change the membrane potential. And if you look back at your Nernst equation, which I'm few, some of our primary examin- examinees would be looking at now, <laughs> they'll look at that. Um, we want to change the threshold mm. of the myocardial cells. And we do that by giving potassium. Mm. So that's the key. But then we also want to allow this heart, which is now still, to have its membrane stabilized mm. and to have its mitochondria stabilized. So other things are in the solution, such as magnesium, which will allow for the changing calcium flux within myocardium to be Mm. stabilized has procaine or other local anesthetics which stabilize membranes Mm. it often has a little bit of mannitol Mm. to scavenge free radicals Mm. and so all of this is within the cardio and it's cold as you mentioned kate Mm. to make the heart um when it's quiet utilize less oxygen Mm. yeah Mm. okay makes sense so let's take the same patient, our 65-year-old patient with ischemic heart disease, hypertension and obesity, but she's having a redo single bypass for a 95% stenosis of the left main. How would this change things? Okay. Well, because this is redo surgery, there's a by far an increased risk to the patient when trying to expose the heart for surgery. There's a risk of damage to the heart during sternotomy and chest opening. And then there's a risk of ventricular tachydysrhythmias trying to free the heart up from the fibrosis that is present which happened during the first surgery. Mm. So we prepare for this by having multiple large-bore venous access lines. Mm. We have blood ready and checked in the operating theater. We have defibrillation pads on the patient prior to induction so that electrocautery around the heart can't induce or may induce VF, but we can shock the patient out of it. Mm. We also have the perfusionist with the bypass machine ready to go in the room prior to incision. Mm. So I personally have been involved in two cases in my career where the heart is either torn completely open as a sternum is pulled open oh, post sternotomy. <laughs> yes, it was a little bit worrisome. <laughs> or the heart is stuck right up to the back mm. of the sternum from the first surgery, and so the saw oh, actually right. goes through it mm. when the sternal saw is used during sternotomy. Oh. Either case is an absolute emergency and requires crashing on to bypass. Mm. Mm. In this situation, we give full dose heparin immediately. And we, I actually request that the, the perfusionist adds even more heparin to their circuit mm. as well in case my heparin doesn't get completely in. Mm. And then without waiting for an ACT, we go on bypass as best we can. Mm. The venous cannula, it's replaced by multiple suckers, which are put into the chest to drain the blood in the chest cavity directly to the pump. Mm. The arterial cannula, sometimes you can get directly into the aorta mm. if you have access. But if you don't, you have to put a cannula into the femoral artery. And you go with the um, arterial femoral cannula. And we call this sucker bypass. Mm. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. Oh they gosh. must be quite strong, though, and like a quite a decent rate you know, to get enough blood like circulate going around the circuit. Yes. It must be quite intense. Mm. It, 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 there is quite a lot of blood coming back through the suckers, but a lot of it spills onto the floor, mm. out the chest. As you can imagine, five liters per minute is That's coming so into the chest mm. cavity. Mm. So that's when we have to add significant volumes of crystalloid and... Um, stored blood which we have in the room into the pump to keep up until they can get true um, Mm. uh, until the surgeon can get absolute uh, 
control of the mm. surgical field. Mm. So you're effectively forming a massive tra- performing a massive transfusion like into the bypass circuit itself, and then it's just coming out the patient at <laughs> the other end. That's exactly like, right. And you're just there. sucking it back yeah. down and then replacing it as best yep. you can. And it's just blood, though, so no, you obviously wouldn't be getting any products at this point because we actually want a patient who's, like, coagulated. That's right. Yeah. In fact, we want yeah. them completely anticoagulated, yeah. Yeah. and we worry that the heparin hasn't got in, um, mm. so we give them even more than we would for normal bypass. Mm. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. Um, so are there some surgical procedures where you can't do this usual cannula placement? Yes, and um, the two most common scenarios are what we think of are minimally invasive surgery, and these are the ASD repairs, VSD repairs, or mitral valve surgery, and also aortic dissections or aortic aneurysm surgery. So for minimally invasive surgical procedures, the chest isn't open via sternotomy, so the aorta and the right atrium can't be fully accessed for the usual cannula. So for the venous cannula, the surgeon places a long, meter-long cannula up from the femoral vein into the right atrium under toe guidance from the anesthetist. And for the arterial cannula, a short 20-centimeter cannula is placed in the femoral artery. So the arterial blood will travel retrograde back up the aorta to perfuse the head and the gut vessels and then antegrade down the leg. And the venous blood will be sucked out of that long venous cannula under suction back into the venous reservoir. In an aortic dissection or aortic aneurysm surgery, the surgeon can't often cannulate the aorta directly as they're not sure if it'll be in the true or the false lumen or they may have to actually do surgery where they want to cannulate. So they cannulate the axillary artery, usually on the right side of the patient, and perfuse the arterial blood back into the patient through this. And they just access up through their existing stenotomy room to get to the axillary artery? No, usually they do a, a, yeah. a small subco- uh, subcostal, subclavian mm. incision, okay. and they attach a graft onto the axillary artery, and then they put the aortic cannula into this graft, which they then perfuse for the flow of the arterial blood. Okay, good to know. That's really interesting. So let's take a step back, and we'll go back to our patient, our 65-year-old lady. So her surgery has progressed well and without any major complications. So what then happens at this point to get the patient off cardiopulmonary bypass? Well, as the surgery progresses and gets close to completion, we begin to rewarm the patient and get them back to normal thermia. Once they're almost warm, the surgeon will then remove the cross clamp off the aorta. This will allow blood to go back to the heart. So the heart becomes perfused by blood going down the coronary arteries and it generally begins to beat. We then wait a few minutes to ensure the appropriate rhythm is present. In addition, we make sure a number of factors are where we want them. For me, I have um, my my simple little mnemonic that I use, um, and it's uh, A through J, where A is airway and B is breathing. Make sure my circuit is patent and my lungs are on. Mm -hmm. C is circulation, making sure I have an arterial line trace and we have actually pulsatile flow happening, to, uh, starting to happen. Mm. D is for drugs, wanting both my uppers and my downers present. Mm. E is for electrolytes, specifically looking at calcium, which is often low, mm. and potassium, which we don't want too high. Mm. F is for fluids. I have fluids hanging to give. G is for glucose. I want to make sure my glucose isn't too high or mm. too low from insulin that's been given. H is for hemoglobin. I want my hemoglobin in the optimal range. I is inotropes and vasopressors in case I need any uppers. Mm -hmm. And J 
funnily enough, is for joules, or temperature, is making sure the temperature is at the right level. So once all these fit into the desired criteria, we want to wean from cardiopulmonary bypass. So this involves the perfusionist partially clamping the venous drainage line. By doing this, the blood will be maintained in the heart and not draining as much back to the pump. So the heart will have to take over some of the work that the bypass machine was previously doing. Now most hearts will fill up They'll take over forward flow of the blood from the bypass machine with only minimal support, usually a little bit of squeeze from a vasopressor like metaraminol or noradrenaline to overcome the pump-initiated uh, vasoplegia, and maybe a small amount of kick by an inotrope, ephedrine or dopamine, to overcome the bypass-mediated ischemic injury. Most hearts that come off post-pump are stiff, though, and they're diastolically dysfunctional. So it won't be able to tolerate a large increase in stroke volume. Remember that cardiac output equals heart rate times stroke volume. So if we can't increase stroke volume, we increase heart rate. So this is why when we bring a heart off pump, we want the heart rate to be relatively high, 90 or 100. And we can either do that with medications or more commonly with pacing. Once we're happy that we're off pump, we take out the venous cannula, cannula and give that blood back into the bypass circuit. Then we'll give protamine to reverse all the heparin that was given while the aortic cannula is still in place. And we do this so we can give blood back into the patient during the protamine infusion. And protamine often leads to a drop in SVR and a drop in blood pressure. Then, then once the protamine's all in, we'll remove the aortic cannula close up the aorta, and close up the patient from there. Almost all the residual blood in the bypass machine is then bagged up and we'll give it back to the patient. One misnomer of cardiac surgery is that it's actually blood-losing surgery. It's really not. It's hemodiluting surgery. There's very little blood lost. The cardiopulmonary bypass machine maintains a constant flow of blood. Cardiotomy suckers take out any extra blood and return it to the bypass machine. But that prime, which was somewhere in the range of one and a half to two liters, dilutes everything significantly. So does that mean that I didn't have to attempt to get a 16-gauge cannula into every single cardiac patient that came in no matter what and got in significant trouble if I did it? No, you did. There's two reasons. One is in case an emergency happens. And then the other good reason is because every cardiac anesthetist wants to feel like a real man. And so they have to put in the largest cannula possible. I see. It's all explained. <laughs> the other question I had was about the protamine. What sort of dose of protamine are you giving after that whopping dose of heparin? Yeah, look, it's, it's again a bit controversial. Most of us give protamine in a one-to-one -one dose for what we gave for the heparin. So for every 100 international units of heparin that we give, we give one milligram of protamine. Mm -hmm. For example, if we gave 40,000 international units of heparin, we'll give 400 milligrams of protamine. Mm -hmm. There is also heparin in the pump prime. Mm -hmm. And so when we give the pump blood back to the patient after that, we'll also give some protamine to cover the heparin that's in mm -hmm. the pump blood as well. I say it's there's a little bit of argument out there because as you're on pump over time, obviously heparin is going to degrade. Mm -hmm. And so protamine itself is an anticoagulant. So if you give too much protamine in relation yeah, to the heparin, you're actually not causing coagulation to occur. You're causing anticoagulation really to occur. Interesting. Yeah. But for most hour, hour and a half pump runs, the amount of heparin that degrades is relatively small 
and most people give a one-to-one dose. Protamine to heparin. Okay, that's one of my other memories is peering over the the drape after I'd cleaned myself up from the aortic cannulation <laughs> session of the morning, um, and looking at the heart because the right heart can be affected by giving protamine too quickly. Yeah,、right? there's a number of reactions that can occur to to protamine, and we all have to be careful of.、Mm-hmm. The most common is an anaphylactoid reaction, which、mm-hmm. is just general systemic vasodilation.、Mm-hmm. We almost always see some of this. The other cr- problem that can occur is anaphylactic reaction,、mm-hmm. which is as you know we all know what an anaphylactic reaction is and how it's treated.、Mm-hmm. And then the third type of reaction that we always worry about is a、um, pulmonary hypertensive crisis、mm-hmm. that can occur. And in that one, as you say, Kate, the right heart becomes bloated, distended, and dysfunctional,、mm-hmm. and that is a real emergency that has to be treated immediately with high dose inotropes.、Mm-hmm. All right, so that's been a great chat, Ivan.、Yeah. I think we've both increased our knowledge, and hopefully our <laughs> listeners will as well. So, at the end of each episode of Deep Breaths,、uh, we finish off with a question, and that question is, "What have we learnt this week in anesthesia?" And since you are our guest, you get to answer this question. So, <laughs> Ivan, what have you learnt this week in anesthesia? Well, one of the things I learnt actually in in looking back at some of the pump stuff is the difference between roller pumps and centrifugal pumps.、Mm. I really forget that stuff as it、mm. fades from my memory. And roller pumps being used so frequently, we hardly ever see the centrifugal pumps、mm. in theater.、Mm. A lot of times they're used in ECMO circuits. But、um, I might go back and relive and revisit my centrifugal <laughs> forces to try and、uh, make my memory <laughs> go, get a little bit better on that one. Oh, that's awesome! Look, Ivan, thank you so much for taking the time to to,、uh, to talk to us about cardiopulmonary bypass. We've really enjoyed this discussion and have learned so much from you today. A million thank yous. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> oh, thank you.、Um, look, it's been a fantastic educational chat on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail dot com. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, or you would like to join us yourself with a topic that you think would be high yield for the exam prepping listeners we have out there, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.